The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Gearing Up for Plasma Biomarkers in the Clinic, Real-World Strategies to Facilitate the Timely and Accurate Neuropathological Diagnosis of Alzheimer's Disease. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DEC 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, welcome to this program called Gearing Up for Plasma Biomarkers in the Clinic, Real-World Strategies to Facilitate the Timely and Accurate Neuropathological Diagnosis of Alzheimer's Disease. I'm Professor Marwan Noel-Sabah. Joining me is Professor Michelle Melke from Wake Forest University uh, in the Department of Epidemiology. The goal of today's workshop is to be able to use validated fluid biomarker tests in the diagnostic workup of patients with cognitive symptoms to confirm an AD diagnosis early in the disease course before your patients have progressed to dementia. To understand the limitations and advantages associated with fluid biomarker testing compared with other types of diagnostic testing for Alzheimer's disease. And finally, to be confident in using emerging plasma biomarkers to improve the early diagnosis and precision management of Alzheimer's disease. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, I'm Professor Marwan Noel-Sabah, Professor of Neurology at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as Research Professor at the University of Arizona and Creighton University. Let us start out by uh, talking about the healthcare burden. As you see here, the number of people with Alzheimer's disease is growing. And the current estimates are roughly about 6 million people in the United States have it now. It's going to more than double by the middle of this century with almost 14 million people. When you look at a categorical definition of dementia being a cause uh, uh, associated with functional impairment related to cognitive impairment, you understand that the number one cause of the categorical definition of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, constituting two-thirds of all dementia in the world. And when you look at it from a global burden standpoint, we're talking about 55 million people in the world have it, uh, and which will grow to almost 140 million by the middle of the century. And as you see on the right-hand side, the number one risk factor continues to be age. So let's start our conversation today by looking at a patient of mine, a redacted and changed for the purposes of this conversation. This is Barbara. She's a 69-year-old female with symptoms of mild cognitive impairment. A few years ago, she had presented to her primary care physician for her annual wellness visit and reported worsening cognitive symptoms. She has 18 years of education. She is right-handed. Her cognitive symptoms were she's not as sharp. She knows this has been going on for a few years, which has progressively worsened over time. She notes self-reports, trouble tracking details of appointments or events. She has episodic confusion. She notes short-term memory impairment, impaired attention, impaired concentration, and difficulty with word retrieval. Her spouse corroborates this with some symptoms and notes some mood changes such as irritability, depression, and anxiety. She notes no impairment in her activities of daily living. She notes no impairment in the ability to speak, find words, comprehend. She denies hallucinations, delusions, and sleep disturbances, and no physical manifestations of tremor or weakness. Her family history is significant for a, um, a mother who had uh, uh, dementia starting at young onset, and uh, she, her medical history is significant for hypertension. She only takes Losartan. 
On her bedside testing, we noticed that her FAST, or Functional Assessment Staging Scale, was somewhere between a 2 and 3, and her Montreal Cognitive Assessment was 21 out of 30. So the first question we should consider is, what should Barbara's primary care provider do next? Should he or she order more testing, refer her to a specialist, do nothing and follow up again in the next annual visit, pursue diagnostic testing to identify the underlying cause of a cognitive decline, or which would you use? We'll come back to that later. So the current healthcare and practice gaps in the detection of Alzheimer's disease include uh, uh, understanding that their practice guidelines don't really have very good informative ways to differentiate this. And Professor Melke, I'll ask you to comment on the practice guidelines at, in later in this talk. Because we know that a lot of patients are not being diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment outside of research settings. Up to 40% of people with even mild dementia are not detected by their primary care physicians, and up to half are never told that they have Alzheimer's disease. Yet, the, the totality of the data suggests that it, uh, changing uh, uh, aggressively diagnosing early in the disease course could change the management in up, uh, up to 60% of patients, uh, according to the new IDEA study, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So what we really want to achieve is to do uh, increase the value of detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. We want to increase the specificity and certainty of diagnosis. We want to uh, counsel patients and their families on this. We want to enable patients to participate in their own care planning, particularly in the mild cognitive impairment. I call this your voice. We want to empower patients to make lifestyle changes, particularly in the mildest stages, because we know that that can slow the rate of decline. We want to stage the uh, Alzheimer's disease pathophysiology. We want to select appropriate individuals at high risk for clinical trials and therapy. We want to monitor responses to therapies, and we want to identify patients who might be uh, uh, benefit from therapy prior to irreversible neurodegeneration. So let's dig deeper and move on to our next section here. The first thing we want to discuss is making a neuropathological diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease disease with validated biomarkers based on the ATN, amyloid, tau, and neurodegeneration framework. So a lot of you have never heard of the ATN framework, and we're going to spend some time really digging deep into it. The fundamental issue that you all have to understand as an audience is, why are we doing this? What are we trying to achieve? And the answer is a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is not very accurate. If you actually look at the totality of the evidence that has been uh, generated to date, a clinical diagnosis. So you might say to me, you know what? I don't need all these tests. I can make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's just fine without a single diagnosis. Well, turns out that in specialty care, the best case scenario, specialty care is wrong 25% of the time. And in primary care, they're wrong 33% of the time. So a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is inaccurate one out of three times, and especially care one out of four times. So one thing we want to do is move from a diagnosis of exclusion to a diagnosis of inclusion. And so that is moving away from just checking a B12, TSH, and MRI and saying everything is fine to a looking at a biomarker-driven diagnosis. So one of the things we want to do is look at the application of biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. We want to select patients who are appropriate for clinical trials. 
We want to select patients who would be appropriate for DMTs because all of you are aware there are DMTs coming. We'll comment on those later. But in order to get your patient a DMT, whatever that might be in the future, you need to have biomarker confirmation of uh, specifically for amyloid. The other thing you want to do is monitor effects of drug candidates and other, in other interventions. We want to look at target engagement. We want to look at uh, whether drugs are removing their target. So if you're looking at an amyloid immunotherapy, is it removing amyloid? Uh, and you want to look at disease course. And then finally, you want to study this at the pathophysiology at a, at a population looking at epidemiological research and clinical risk assessment. So let's kind of drill down on ATN. A stands for amyloid, T stands for tau, and N stands for neurodegeneration. And if you look at this uh, graph, uh, this table, from left to right, you see there's the white line, there's the light gray lines, and then there's the dark gray lines. And so I'm spending your, one of you direct your eyes to the left side. What you see is if your light gray is amyloid positive or A positive, that is the Alzheimer group. So fundamentally, we understand Alzheimer's disease to be an amyloidopathy. And when we look at diseases, proteinopathies, we understand that Parkinson's is a synucleinopathy, Lewy body dementia is a, is a, a synucleinopathy and uh, amyloidopathy, and we look at uh, PSP and CBD as, as uh, tauopathies. So if you're A negative, that is the top and the bottom, you do not have Alzheimer's disease. You may have another neurodegenerative diseases, just not Alzheimer's disease. So the driver is A positive. But then you would look for T or tau, or, and then further neurodegeneration. And so the top line is A negative, T negative, N negative, which is effectively a normal person. And the bottom is another type of neurodegenerative disease, for example, PSP, where they can be A negative, but T positive or neurodegenerative positive. So understand the amyloid tau and neurodegeneration is a pathological construct that was proposed by Cliff Jack and colleagues in 2018. And the reason this is important for you as an audience to understand is, is that there is now a big move in our field, and Dr. Melke and people, specialists like Dr. Melke and myself, are, are involved in these kinds of discussions on retroactively applying a pathological criteria to a clinical uh, paradigm. So we might be moving to the point where we take ATN from a pathological construct and then using it in our clinical uh, construct and clinical practice. And I will say to you, now in my medical practice, I've started designating as best as possible when I have CSF or PET or other biomarkers, I am now starting to designate uh, A, T, and N and specificity around that. And so why is this important is because you look at the, at the curves and you see that amyloid production, we're talking now about the graph on the left, amyloid is an early seminal event. So the CSF changes and amyloid PET changes are occurring well before the onset of symptoms, followed by the, the development of phosphorylated tau, both CSF and plasma detected, and then you start to see other changes like neurogranin. When you look at the bottom of the left-hand side, you see that the dementia is the end of the disease. So the symptomatic phase is only after your brain is full of amyloid. And we know that amyloid does not correlate well with clinical progression, but tau does. So by the time they walk in the door to clinic, they're full of disease and that the progression might be correlated to tau, tau not to amyloid. 
when you're looking at it from a biomarker standpoint, you look at the right-hand side. What are we going to detect and what tissue are we going to use to detect it? So if it's PET, we could look at amyloid or tau PET. If we're looking at uh, neurodegeneration, we'd look at FDG PET or MRI. In blood, and Dr. Melke will talk a lot about blood here in the, in the next uh, segment, uh, you'll see what we're able to detect and she'll spend some more time. But the other thing we're looking at is what are we detecting in CSF, whether it's a, a ratio of P tau to A beta 42, is it just the t uh, tau, which form of tau, 181, 271, 217, or 231. And in the future, we're going to be measuring other things in a multiplex assay, including neurofilament light and neurogranin. So let's spend a minute talking about neuroimaging biomarkers. This is an obvious thing, like, of course, I'm going to check you and talk about MRI. But what I really want this audience to understand is MRI to date has been used for exclusion. So a diagnosis of exclusion, right? You're checking for hydrocephalus, stroke, mass, uh, and white matter change. But I want you as an audience to understand that we're now moving away from using MRI strictly for exclusion and starting to look at it for more specificity. One, we want to look at microhemorrhage quantification. Two, we want to look at volumetrics because volumetrics can show that if the medial temporal lobe is atrophic, then the volumetrics might suggest that there is a proxy marker of neurodegeneration. And three is we want to look at white matter scoring because if there's significant white matter rare refraction, you may not be dealing with Alzheimer's as the main driver of your pathology. So MRI, even in the way we're using it in clinical practice, is going to evolve. And the fundamental issue that you have to understand is in the era of the monoclonal antibodies, we will be using MRIs as safety measurements to check for a condition called ARIA, amyloid-related imaging abnormality. So what about PET? We here is amyloid PET. I want to direct you to the right-hand side of the slide. The easiest way to look at amyloid PET is a binary uh, strategy, positive or negative. In a negative scan, the gray-white matter junction is clearly differentiated, and in a positive scan, the gray-white matter junction is blurred. So if you see the positive scan, you cannot differentiate the gray and white, that's the upper right, uh, and the middle right, you see the gray-white matter on a negative scan is clearly differentiated. In clinical practice, it would be binary. You have amyloid or you don't have amyloid on PET scan. And I, I'm a big fan of amyloid PET. Unfortunately, at least at this moment, it's still not reimbursed by CMS. So when we look at the amyloid, uh, the appropriate use criteria for amyloid PET, you see that it is appropriate for patients with progressive or persistent unexplained mild cognitive impairment, where there's an unclear presentation, which would include possible Alzheimer's disease, or when there's young onset, very young and under age 65, or with patients with unexplained progressive dementia. We would not, at least in clinical practice, we would not do it on the basis of their APOE only, or if they're clinically asymptomatic, or, uh, uh, or for non-medical use. So this is trying to say we need to select the patients who are appropriate and useful. And there's been a large study, which we want to talk about here, called the IDEA study. So as I mentioned, we said that CMS has not traditionally been uh, approving these or reimbursing these scans. Most people not realize that amyloid PET has been available for the past decade, uh, but not reimbursed. So my colleague, Dr. Gil Rabinovich at UCSF, decided to uh, 
do a Medicare demonstration grant. He enrolled almost 12,000 people uh, into this study. Uh, and the simple purpose was to find out, would having amyloid PET uh, alter your treatment management? Would it alter what you say to your patient? Would it alter your diagnosis? Would it alter how you manage your patient? What you would prescribe? And the answer is decidedly yes. And it showed that in patients with mild cognitive impairment, physicians change their treatment plan 60% of the time. And with dementia, they change their treatment plan 63% of the time. I want to make a point that's very, very important for this audience to understand is that patients we called Alzheimer's disease were only positive on their amyloid PET 70% of the time. And people with mild cognitive impairment were only positive about half of the time. So amyloid PET, highly informative can aid in medical practice. What about TALPET? Again, this audience is probably not aware that TALPET has now been approved uh, as a, a fully approved uh, for about two years, about 2020 or 2021, a floor tau appear was approved. And tau uh, correlates very, very well with clinical progression. So if you actually look at it, we know that patients who are amyloid positive uh, with intermediate amounts of tau can very reliably progress. And if they're negative on their tau, they're very reliably not likely to progress. So it is a good marker of clinical progression, although, again, we're not using it routinely in clinical practice. So what about testing? Because I actually had this patient ask me today in clinic, should I do PET? Should I do CSF? What are the advantages and disadvantages? Well, the fundamental thing is, uh, at least right now in clinical practice, is that amyloid tet, PET and tau PET have multiple advantages, uh, particularly an image, particularly the fact that it's non-invasive, uh, but, uh, and patients would prefer to get a PET scan. The, the limitation, of course, is not reimbursed. And you have to have the benefit of being in a large center like uh, Dr. Melke and I are in large centers. And so we have these at our fingertips. A lot of places don't. Even the local pet center may not have access to these uh, contrast agents, but they have good sensitivity and specificity. In contrast, CSF is more widely available, but the kind of platform that is available might change. It might be 42 to 40 uh, amyloid or just for total tau or phosphorylated tau. Um, there are multiple tests that are approved, so you have to make sure you're looking at the right one. Some physicians are doing it in their practice, but a lot of them are outsourcing it to local radiologists. Some patients don't like lumbar puncture and may have contraindications, including back surgery, to getting lumbar puncture, and the sensitivity and specificity are a little bit lower. So there are advantages and disadvantages to each, and that's something to consider. So let's now move on to talk about CSF biomarkers. Let's come back to Barbara. We Remember, we started out with Barbara, and I told you everything about her on the left-hand box. Uh, what I had seen in my practice is that she had had an MRI before showing no acute disease. Back in 2018, when she was originally seen by a primary care physician who sent her to another neurologist, the northern neurologist ordered 50G PET, uh, and it showed no hypometabolism. Let me give you one sidebar that's relevant to this audience. FDG PET has very low sensitivity and specificity when you're minimally impaired. So the closer to a mini-mental of 30, the less likely your FDG PET is to be abnormal. And therefore, that might be a false negative. So I just want to 
bring that out to your attention. In my practice, uh, I actually ordered uh, genetic testing, APOE genotyping. In this case, uh, the patient came back APOE 4-4. And when I did CSF testing on this patient, uh, because of the other things, remember we had already talked about FDG, PET, MRI, uh, but the patient was getting worse. Uh, I said, let's do CSF testing, again, because amyloid PET was not reimbursed. As you see, the CSF A beta 42 was 393, total tau 507, and phosphorylated tau 82.8. I want to point out that that A beta 42 is quite low, uh, and we get a little nervous when it's below 1,000 and very nervous when it's below 500. Uh, total tau is up. Uh, we would expect it to get uh, 220 in some of the reference ranges or 250 in some of the reference ranges. So 500 is over 500 is very elevated in the total tau, which is a marker of any injury. And phosphorylated tau, particularly when it's above 20 or 30, uh, we would say it's abnormal. And here it's 82.8. And then we, in this assay, you look at the ATI amyloid tau index and below 1.0 it's consistent with Alzheimer's disease. The reason I'm also bringing it up is that if you might look at a different CSF uh, report, which would look at a phosphorylated tau to A beta 42, which could be uh, uh, showing above 0.023. So what are we measuring and why are we measuring it? Because we want to measure three proteins, CSF A beta 42, CSF total tau, and CSF phosphorylated tau showing very clearly and very reproducibly in hundreds of tests that amyloid goes down, down, total tau goes up, and phosphorylated tau goes up. Now, any tau elevation is a marker of injury, but when it's specifically the phosphorylated forms of tau, that would be specific to Alzheimer's disease. So the biomarkers have been looked at. You would say, well, if I can get PET, what about CSF? The answer is yes. Uh, very clearly, the concordance, whether you're looking at a Swedish study or the U.S. study, at the ADNI study, or the global study, amyloid PET correlates very, very well with CSF biomarkers with a concordance of better than 90% concordance of visual amyloid PET to CSF testing uh, and uh, visual amyloid PET to uh, whatever ratio you're looking at. The question then is, what should you measure? Should it be total tau, phosphorylated tau? A beta 40 to 40, 42 to 40. There is one in vitro diagnostic FDA approved and is the 42 to 40 uh, test. And it is now available and, and, if, and uh, widely available. But the question is, would that be sufficient? And the answer is, is that the sensitivity and specificity are good, uh, but some people would say, make the argument that adding uh, a measure, a diagnostic measure for phosphorylated tau would make sense. And so when you look at the areas under the curve of amyloid versus phosphorylated tau, they're both good, but when you combine them, they get very good. So if you look at phosphorylated tau to A beta 42, the area under the curve is 0.94, which is better than 42 to 40 ratio or total tau to 42 ratio or individual biomarkers. So the point is, is that you want to use them in combination and look at the ratios. Now, what about the correlation of that CSF PTAL181 A beta 42 ratio to uh, amyloid PET? And you see, again, if you look at the individual biomarkers uh, versus the uh, combinations, if you, very, very clearly uh, in the bottom right hand corner, uh, the row 
is the P tau to A beta 42, the rho correlation is very high of 0.70. Total tau to A beta 42 is very good at 0.70. But if you're just looking at individual biomarkers on the left-hand side, you see that the correlation just not as good. Not bad, but not as good. So we really want to look at the correlation of uh, the ratio of P tau to A beta 42 because it correlates very, very well with amyloid PET. What about other biomarkers like total tau, neurogran, neurofilament light? And these are now being looked at, neurofilament light available, and that comes right out of the multiple sclerosis literature, but that the CSF total tau is, uh, does, it, I consider it to be a, a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. Excuse me, neurogranin and neurofilament light are lagging indicators, not leading indicators. So you could have amyloid positivity and tau positivity even before you're showing abnormalities on neurogranin or neurofilament light. So the point is, is that neurogranin and neurofilament light are being explored with very good sensitivity and specificity being looked at, or the AUC being looked at, but they have not been added as part of routine clinical practice yet. So then, and we should talk about this, uh, Dr. Melke, uh, what would be the appropriate use for CSF biomarkers? These are the guidelines, but love your comments as we lead into your uh, section. You love your perspective on what you would think is appropriate in the use of CSF in the clinic. So I, I think uh, CSF biomarkers are, are particularly appropriate um, for affirming uh, presence of pathology. As we'll talk about in the future with blood, we're not quite there yet in terms of sensitivity and specificity to solely base the pathological diagnosis on that. And so if we do start with the blood um, and it does end up being positive, confirmation with a CSF biomarker would really help us make sure that that person actually has amyloid pathology. Excellent. And I agree. In fact, uh, I would use it in, in this using the appropriate use guidelines. Uh, and I do use it, particularly in patients who are young onset, uh, who uh, uh, I'm trying to differentiate frontotemporal dementia from Alzheimer's. and very infrequently in self-reported subjective memory complaints. Uh, but if their APOE is positive, I might think about it. Frankly, in subjective memory complaint, I might just put them in a prevention trial of some kind or, or another. And with that, uh, Professor Melke, I'll have you take it from here. Well, great. Thanks, uh, Dr. Sabah, for giving me an, a very nice lead in here. So um, next, I'll start focusing on uh, optimizing early biomarker-based diagnosis and management of Alzheimer's disease. So the past few years have really been tremendous in the development of technology that now allow us to examine blood-based biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. And this has primarily been because, or some of the difficulty has been because, the levels of amyloid and tau in the blood is much less than the levels in the CSF. And so to date, it has been difficult to detect. And of course, as uh, Dr. Sabah has nicely highlighted, there are, of course, certain limitations with current biomarkers available, such as amyloid or tau PET scans and lumbar puncture, including the invasiveness, um, the cost, some of which may uh, not be reimbursable, uh, and the feasibility of getting access uh, to these scans as, as well as access to lumbar punctures. So blood-based biomarkers really provide a very promising avenue uh, to get information on AD pathophysiology uh, at a lower cost, uh, more easily, and less invasively. 
Now, a lot of times we talk about diagnosis in terms of the blood markers, which I'll talk about coming down the road. But um, other than diagnosis, there's a lot of other potential future applications for these biomarkers. Um, for example, population screening to identify those individuals at risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, diagnosis in symptomatic patients, as we discussed, and then also potentially monitoring the effectiveness of disease-modifying therapies or uh, monitoring disease progression. Blood-based biomarkers are also important because the vast majority of individuals will be diagnosed and followed in primary care, where there's limited access to PET and CSF. And this is primarily because there's limited capacity of uh, Alzheimer's disease and related dementia specialists that will be able to see them. Um, and so as a result, uh, again, blood-based biomarkers will be easier to use at the primary care level. Now, following in, in line of the description that Dr. Sabah gave in, in terms of blood-based biomarkers, we also have markers that are indicative of ATN. So the plasma amyloid beta 4240 ratio in blood is indicative of amyloid pathology. We have multiple tau, tau isoforms, potentially indicative of tau pathology. And then for neurodegeneration, we have neurofilament light, or NFL, as well as gliofibrillary acidic protein, or GFAP. And I'll go through each of these briefly, starting with the plasma amyloid biomarkers. So several studies have now shown through multiple mechanisms uh, and platforms, such as mass spectrometry, as well as immunoassays, that amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratio is lower among those individuals that are amyloid positive compared to those that are amyloid negative. Now, if you're, you're looking closely at this slide, you can see that uh, the far left has an opposite result from the middle in terms of mass spec. And that's because the far left is looking at the amyloid beta 1 to 40 or 40 to 42 ratio as opposed to the 42 to 40 ratio. So they're saying the same things, even though it, it might look on, on quick look that they have opposite results. Um, going forward, generally, with all the blood tests, uh, those that are available clinically as well for research purposes, we focus on the 42 to 40 ratio, similarly to what we see in um, or what we focus on for CSF. In addition to uh, having good sensitivity and specificity for detecting brain amyloid pathology, Low plasma amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratio has been associated with cognitive decline and risk of Alzheimer's disease. This occurs across the clinical uh, spectrum. So among cognitively unimpaired individuals predicting risk of MCI and from MCI risk of Alzheimer's disease. Now, one limitation about using the plasma amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratio compared to CSF is that there is a smaller difference in those individuals that do and do not have brain amyloid pathology. So the, the difference roughly it, when we're looking at CSF is about a 50% difference, whereas in plasma, it's only about a 20% difference. So it is more di difficult to detect whether uh, somebody is positive or not. Now, there are uh, currently a couple commercially available tests. And I say currently because with um, the vast expansion of this field and development of more tests, there will certainly be more clinical tests, uh, not only for amyloid, but for some of the other biomarkers we're talking about um, within the next couple of years as well. Um, the first test that was uh, approved and was commercially available was Precivity AD. Um, this particular test is an algorithm that consists of plasma amyloid beta 42 and 40 measured by mass spec, uh, APOE4 genotype, as well as patient age. 
And when it's put, this information is put into the algorithm, you get a result that low probability of having elevated brain amyloid, intermediate probability, or high probability. Now, one aspect I, I do want to point out about this test, um, it, it has shown to have good sensitivity and um, decent specificity. Uh, notably, though, it does take into account APOE4 genotype. And we know that among African-Americans and some other racial and ethnic groups, the APOE4 genotype is not as penetrant. Therefore, we're not clear at this moment um, what the sensitivity and specificity is for more diverse populations. And then in addition to Precivity AD, there is also the AD detect test that is commercially available. Um, this is only a mass spec test solely based on the plasma amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratio, again, suggesting um, good specificity and sensitivity. So next, we'll move on to talking about some of the plasma P-tau biomarkers, or phosphotau. Now, plasma phosphotau 181 was the first plasma phosphotau marker that was published to date. And as I'll talk about in a second, it's the only one that is uh, commercially available. I think plasma P-tau 181 was first examined in the blood because in the CSF, the focus is typically on plasma P-tau 181. So many, many studies today using multiple platforms, including MSD, as well as Samoa, and now uh, most recently mass spec, suggests that uh, plasma P-tau levels are higher among those individuals that are amyloid positive compared to amyloid negative. P-tau levels are also higher among those individuals that uh, are tau-pet positive, particularly in the earlier stages as compared to tau-pet negative. Now, one question, uh, as Dr. Sabah had, had talked about in terms of tauopathies, a biomarker for Alzheimer's disease uh, will be important to be able to separate from other tauopathies. And in Alzheimer's disease, we see the 3R, 4R tauopathy, and these plasma P-tau biomarkers that are currently available do appear to be specific for the Alzheimer's type of tauopathies. And so we don't necessarily see elevated P-tau levels in uh, some frontal temporal dementias or, or other types of tauopathies. Now, in addition to um, diagnosing or, or being good at detecting amyloid pathology, uh, high levels of plasma P-tau have also been shown to predict progression from cognitively unimpaired individuals to MCI and also from MCI to uh, dementia. There are a couple P-tau tests that are clinically available. One is on the Samoa platform, uh, as uh, recently in October of 2021 has been granted breakthrough device designation. Um, test has uh, high sensitivity, 94%, a little bit lower uh, specificity. And then in addition, there's also a, an Alexis amyloid plasma panel. Now, this one uh, takes into account both the plasma P-tau 181 as well as APOE4 genotype. So just a, a limitation potentially, again, of, of the use of APOE in this algorithm when we look at a little bit more diverse populations. So more research is needed there to determine whether it, it will be as accurate in those populations. Now, one thing uh, to notice here as well is that all these tests, including the amyloid tests that I just talked about, are specific for those individuals that have cognitive impairment. And so um, there's no indication or suggestion right now to use among individuals that are cognitively unimpaired, uh, even those that might have uh, an APOE4 gene type. 
In addition to plasma uh, PTAU-181, a second uh, isoform, 217, has been identified and looks potentially even more promising. Uh, Plasma PTAU-217 levels are increased by 300 to 700% in individuals who are symptomatic and amyloid positive compared to amyloid negative. So this difference is much greater than PTAU-181 and suggests that it may be a better diagnostic marker. There's also uh, very good evidence that plasma PTAU um, is essentially as good as CSF PTAU-217 and TAU-PET in, again, separating those that are amyloid positive and amyloid negative. Um, there are no commercially available, uh, clinically available PTAU-217 assays for plasma at the moment, um, but I, I imagine they will be coming very shortly. And then lastly, in terms of plasma PTAU isoforms, is 231. This has been the most uh, recent isoform that has been examined. And again, very similar to the other isoforms, we see higher levels among those individuals that are amyloid positive compared to amyloid negative and increasing levels with the clinical severity of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, I think the one potential advantage of 231 over the others is that there are some studies that are suggesting that this isoform might change a little bit earlier than 181 to 217. Um, However, additional research will be needed to further understand that. Um, And and here, again, 231 is is not commercially available at this time. So next, we'll move on to some of the plasma neurodegeneration biomarkers. And this includes, as I had mentioned previously, and Dr. Sabah had talked about, both neurofilament light as well as GFAP. So plasma NFL, uh, as it's a biomarker of neurodegeneration, um, which is not specific to Alzheimer's disease, as, as Dr. Sabah discussed. And so plasma NFL is, is more a marker of injury and general neurodegeneration. So as you see with uh, both the left and middle plot in uh, King's College London cohort and Swedish Biofinder cohort, NFL is also increased in a variety of other neurodegenerative diseases. However, um, NFL and neurodegeneration does correlate more strongly with cognition and so may be a better marker of the severity of uh, the clinical disease endpoint. In addition, NFL may be helpful in terms of differentiating neurodegenerative diseases from late-onset primary psychiatric disorders or down the road being combined with, say, amyloid or PTAU biomarkers to be even more sensitive and specific. There are uh, two commercially available plasma NFL tests uh, based on the Samoa platform as well as uh, an amino assay platform. Now, there's been very little use clinically in in terms of uh, NFL for Alzheimer's disease. Most of the work done to date has been on other neurodegenerative diseases, especially multiple sclerosis and ALS, as well as looking at uh, traumatic brain injury. An emerging marker for neurodegeneration uh, is plasma GFAP. And plasma GFAP is thought to be a marker of astroglial activation and there provide um, more information in terms of type of neurodegeneration and some of the underlying pathologies. And as you can see here, plasma GFAP is increased among individuals with Alzheimer's disease dementia. Uh, There are higher levels of GFAP among those individuals that are amyloid positive compared to amyloid negative. And GFAP has been shown to predict cognitive decline and risk of Alzheimer's disease dementia. However, as a marker of neurodegeneration, again, it is not specific. 
Uh, plasma GFAP has also been found to be elevated in stroke patients as well as frontal temporal dementia and Lewy body dementia. So more work here needed to understand exactly how this biomarker can be used in the context of either diagnosis, uh, pro prognosis, or therapeutic monitoring among Alzheimer's disease patients. So it, most of the work that we've talked about to date in terms of the blood-based biomarkers have been done in, in clinical cohorts and more specialty clinics. And as we talked about in the very beginning, one of the best uh, or great benefits of blood-based biomarkers is their feasibility at the population level. And so as we're moving forward, there's a lot more interest and a lot more research in terms of understanding what these biomarkers might look at like in the general population and what factors might affect the interpretation of the results, particularly because the general uh, population is going to be much more heterogeneous. And we and others have started to, to look at these biomarkers in larger community-based cohorts and try to understand factors that might affect their interpretation. Now, if we're looking at the right, this is a, a very, very busy slide. Uh, here, we looked at both PTAU-181 and PTAU-217. The results are essentially exactly the same. So for ease, we can just focus on PTAU-217. Um, the black markers indicate unadjusted. Red is adjusted for age and sex. And then blue is also additionally adjusted for uh, amyloid. Now, to give you a set point in terms of talking about these comorbidities, if you look at the very bottom where it says amyloid positive, this is the difference in the plasma PTAL levels um, between those individuals that are amyloid PET positive versus amyloid PET negative. And if you look at the PTAL 217, that's probably about uh, 0.7 mean difference. Um, so compare that to if you look in the middle at chronic kidney disease or CKD, you can see that the difference between somebody that's chronic kidney disease positive versus negative is almost the same as somebody who is amyloid PET positive versus negative. Uh, similarly, we can also see that stroke and MI, uh, individuals with those conditions have elevated levels as well. And then interestingly, when we look at BMI, we actually see increasing BMI is associated with decreasing levels of uh, the plasma PTAU in the blood. Now with the BMI, we think that this is uh, potentially due to changes in blood volume. So increasing obesity, increasing blood volume, and that's causing the lower levels in the blood for those individuals that are obese. And as I'll show you in the next couple slides, we also see the same things with some of the other blood markers. Why is this important? Well, you know, from a perspective of individuals that are coming in with cognitive impairment, the vast majority, uh, especially at the population level, will have uh, additional comorbidities. And so it's going to be important to interpret these markers in light of those comorbidities. It's also important to think about um, differences by race ethnicity, which uh, has resulted in a lot of discussion lately. And so in terms of understanding, say, differences in blood levels between Blacks and whites or whites and Hispanics, um, one of the factors that we need to consider is that the prevalence and incidence of these conditions that are highlighted here differ across race, race and ethnicity, specifically due to social determinants of health. And so as we start thinking about, for example, Black-white differences, there may be differences in the levels, but it could very likely be due to differences in the prevalence of the comorbidities as compared um, to uh, specific genetic differences.
So similarly, we've also looked at uh, additional chronic conditions in relation to plasma amyloid beta, uh, neurofilament light, as well as total tau levels. And we do see some similar associations. And so if you look on, on the left with NFL, those individuals that have chronic kidney disease have higher levels compared to those individuals that don't. Um, interestingly, when we look on the right with amyloid beta 40 and 42, we again see that chronic kidney disease is associated with elevated levels. However, when we look at the amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratio, um, a lot of that difference is reduced, primarily because we're looking at the ratio as opposed to the individual level. So in terms of going forward and trying to think about what we can do or, or how we can better interpret these effects of these comorbidities to have a more accurate diagnosis with the blood markers, it does appear based on um, the limited change for amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratio that if we can identify ratios for PTAU as well as some of the other markers, that might help to correct for some of these physiological effects. Um, there's a lot of next steps that we need to understand in terms of how to use these blood markers at the population level. For example, so far I've talked about um, specific chronic conditions, but there are certainly several people out there that are obese and also have chronic kidney disease, which would take the blood markers in the opposite levels. And so we'll need to understand how to interpret these markers in the context of uh, the presence of multiple comorbidities. And there's also been some interest in terms of understanding whether certain medications affect levels. And at a recent conference, um, it was presented that uh, tefamidus and a couple other potential medications may also affect amyloid beta processing. So still a little bit of work to do to be done in the arena. So let's uh, move our discussion into really briefly talking about the anti-amyloid monoclonals. As we both know, biologics have been kind of coming into the era of medicine now just coming the latest stop on the train is Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and uh, the question then becomes, what are we going to uh, manage? And if you see the first monoclonal that was approved was aducanumab, which, as you know, has become co effectively come and gone because CMS is not paying for it. We just heard about lecanumab being improved, uh, which both of those drugs uh, uh, removed amyloid and slowed uh, the rate of decline uh, with a more consistent signal, I think, identified in lecanemab. And there is the widely anticipated data result coming from uh, denanenab as well. So three monoclonal antibodies, all remove amyloid, uh, all potentially slow the rate of decline. Uh, so uh, the reason this is important, the question, Dr. Melky, that we may have to ask, as you know, you uh, being epidemiologist, is do you think we're going to manage on a chronic basis, of course, the safety data, yes, for the MRIs, but would we use testing, CSF or plasma testing, as proxy markers of efficacy? Do you anticipate that? Or do you anticipate that we're just going to do a clinical measures and not really uh, really dig, dig or deep into these kinds of biomarkers? No, I, I do think that we're going to use the biomarkers to determine disease efficacy. And this will be, you know, not only important here to determine whether the drug is, is working for an individual, especially given potentially safety profiles and, and adverse events. Um, but this will also be important down the road as we hopefully have disease-modifying therapies for alpha-synucleinopathies and, and other types of drugs, too, to make sure that we're lowering the protein and, and affecting the disease process that we're trying to affect. 
So you see on the right-hand side of the slide on the lacanumab that the P-tau, CSF, and plasma kind of followed similar trend patterns. Do you anticipate we would then just use plasma testing kind of as the screening tool, or would we want to do serial CSF testing? No, the, the beauty really of, of using plasma is that it's less invasive and expensive and, and better for serial tests. So I, I do see in the future, you, you know, you may have a CSF in addition to the plasma test to confirm the diagnosis, but then once the disease-modifying therapies start, I, I think plasma would, would ultimately be ideal in, in terms of examining that progression and effects on the markers. So uh, the other thing we've seen, of course, Donanonab uh, showed that they actually mark uh, reduced plasma P-tau and GFAP. So we know that these monoclones are driving clinical effects, I mean, driving down biomarkers almost as robustly as clinical. Some people, and this is a speculative question to you, Dr. Melke, some people think that the uh, clinical efficacy signal is driven by the secondary things like driving down P-tau. Again, this is speculative. This is uh, your thoughts about that, or is it just it has to do with the removal of amyloid? <laughs> that, that's a, a great question. Maybe a little bit of a, a trick question. Um, no, that's why I'm saying it's speculative. And that's why I said speculative, because we could spend yeah. the rest of our time just discussing that idea. Yeah, we, we could. Um, it, you know, the, the one thing with the plasma P-Tau 217 that we didn't really highlight um, earlier, but it, it is a biomarker of amyloid as well. And so that, that makes it a little bit more complicated in terms of trying to understand what the driver is. Um, but presumably, amyloid is leading, leading to tau, and then um, that's what P-tau-217 is picking up here. So you uh, will uh, have been leading this discussion on uh, the appropriate use. Like we've been discussing appropriate use for PET, appropriate use for CSF. You've had a lot of discussions about the appropriate use for uh, bio, uh, blood-based biomarkers. Uh, and uh, to this audience, uh, look in your upper right-hand side. There is a downloadable practice aid. And if you see the star on this deck, look for those practice aids. But Dr. Melke, back to you. Do you, where are you at with the appropriate use of, a, of the blood-based biomarkers? That's a great question. And, and before I start, I, I want to say, looking here and others, there are some guidelines, some potential recommendations, but there are no guidelines to date. And as we get farther along with the blood-based biomarkers and understand how they can best be used, and as more come on the market, there will be recommendations down the road. So what we do say right now are, are kind of the, the state of the art, but will potentially change in the future. Um, I, I think it, in terms of if we go down, and I'm really interested, uh, you know, because there is a lot of debate right now, what, what your thoughts are as well. In terms of which blood-based biomarkers, there haven't been specific recommendations that have come out to say, you know, to use PTAU as opposed to amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratio. Um, those appear to be somewhat equivalent right now. Uh, although, as we talked about in terms of the commercially available, some are algorithms with APOE um, and, and others are those that are alone. And so depending on the population, it, you might want to consider APOE or you might not. And I would agree with that. And of course, the other consideration that we would think about is the setting, right? Is it specialty care versus primary care? Would we use any kind of screening tool in primary care as a means of referring on these are things that are still being discussed and debated, and I think you're in leading these efforts to kind of figure this out. So thank you for that. 
Uh, so where do you see the potential of blood-brain biomarker? And that was my comment kind of leading to this slide. Your thoughts about where we're going to land uh, uh, blood-based biomarkers? Well, I, I think if we look, you know, five, 10 years down the road, ideally what we would like to have is, you know, something like a cholesterol biomarker or something that's much more common in clinical practice. Um, so again, in the ideal world, we could use some of these blood-based biomarkers, maybe starting uh, around the time of 50 or the same time you get a colonoscopy and start measuring uh, to determine whether somebody becomes abnormal or not. Now, and this would be among asymptomatic populations, and so you screen those individuals that are at risk, and then those individuals that are starting to develop pathology could go on perhaps to be monoclonal antibodies to reduce that pathology or to other potential interventions. Um, so it's, it's really like if you're thinking about um, breast cancer and your mammography with a blood test, and then you go on to some more evasive uh, tests as well. So it's, it would be something that would really fit into clinical practice that would be a general screen uh, down the road. My hope is that we'll use it like a PSA for a man, and if it's positive, you go do more testing. If you're negative, you use it for the negative predictive value. We're going to wrap things up here in a little while, but I wanted to talk about the multidisciplinary strategies to increase biomarker testing in patients with cognitive impairment symptoms. So this is our patient that we had talked about, uh, Barbara, who has mild cognitive impairment, CSF is confirmed, uh, and ApoE4 homozygote. Uh, now, uh, would there be, would you have considered plasma testing here? Um, you know, we could think about in primary care, given um, the MOCA, given some other cognitive symptoms, um, that it might be feasible then to run a blood-based test to see if she is positive. If she's positive, potentially refer on to a specialist um, for additional therapies and, and checking with either CSF or PET. If she's negative, though, then that can get, be an indication that something else is going on. And you can start thinking about maybe there's some underlying depression. Maybe there are other symptoms, sleep symptoms that the person can look into without being referred on to a specialist. Let's look at our next patient, uh, which is, you know, we don't want to just look at people who are absolutely likely to uh, include, but we might want to look at patients who might not be eligible. So let's talk about Joe. He is 90. He's right-handed with 16 years of education. He's been having progressive symptoms for a period of time. He now has assistance with activity of daily living. He needs assistance with home care. He's more scattered in his thinking. He's misplacing objects. He's showing short-term forgetfulness. He's repeating himself. He stopped driving about six years ago. He's not acting out uh, 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 dreams, but he is having hypnagogic hallucinations. We did, in our clinic, we do something called the Alzheimer questionnaire, uh, and 20 is quite elevated. The functional assessment staging is uh, five, which puts him in the moderately impaired range. Uh, Lewy body dementia or Lewy body clinical rating scale is three, which is low probability of uh, Lewy body dementia. As Montreal cognitive assessment is nine out of 30, which is in the moderate, trending a little bit towards severe. And as free recall is zero out of five. Medical history symptoms for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, hypothyroidism, osteoporosis, negative for dementia. And here's his med list coming into our clinic. So 
the questions that we're being asked is, MRI uh, shows uh, some medial temporal lobe atrophy, third percentile, which is a proxy marker of neurodegeneration. Uh, and, you know, a lot of questions are, would we have even ordered FDG-PET? But in this case, the FDG-PET shows, uh, uh, shows uh, parietotemporal hypermetabolism consistent with Alzheimer's disease, and the neuropsychological testing shows major neurocognitive disorder. So the questions then are to you, would you, would, would plasma testing be appropriate in a situation like this? Uh, I assume for a lot of reasons, we may not ever give this guy monoclonal antibodies based on age and severity. So would we do more testing is what I'm really asking you. And what would you do from a population standpoint? Yeah, so I, I think when we're thinking about biomarker testing uh, for anything, and as you mentioned for this patient with FDG PET as well, the importance uh, is what information you're going to get from this and whether it's actually going to change your clinical practice or how you treat the patient. Um, in this case, as you mentioned, he is 90 years old, which is uh, older than um, the, the age is typical for uh, uh, the monoclonal antibodies. Um, and he also is. Um, uh, probably moderate dementia, which is far more progressed than uh, the effectiveness shown with the monoclonal antibodies as well. And so uh, based on those, with this particular patient, it doesn't appear that knowing uh, what the Alzheimer's disease pathology status is with additional testing would be helpful in terms of clinical care. So whether we're talking about a blood biomarker, or even amyloid PET or CSF, um, I, I don't think it would be helpful. I agree. Uh, and particularly because this patient uh, is, you know, uh, not appropriate in any case for a monoclonal. So further testing, I don't think, adds a lot of value. Uh, so you and I are thinking very carefully as you both, uh, both from an epidemiological standpoint and a clinical practice standpoint, the whole reengineering of the patient uh, journey. And as to this audience, please uh, find the downloadable practice aid, uh, which can be found uh, as attached to this slide. But I want you, Professor Melky, to comment on the reengineering. How do you envision us going about detecting patients? Does it start in primary care? Does this go to specialty care? Because I think there have been a lot of roadblocks, and I think you would agree there have been a lot of roadblocks. How do we reengineer the patient experience from the day they are worried about it to the day they get a monoclonal. What do you see happening? This uh, very, very good question, one that's very debated uh, right now. Um, you know, given the number of Alzheimer's disease cases and especially the need to detect them early, as you talked about earlier, in the mild cognitive uh, impairment phase or, or maybe even a little bit earlier for the disease-modifying therapies to, to work, um, that will even increase numbers more. And so really, the first point of contact, and for most individuals, probably the only point of contact is going to be primary care physicians. Uh, as I mentioned before, unfortunately, there just are not enough uh, Alzheimer's disease specialists like yourself, neurologists, uh, geriatricians that can attend to all the patients that will be affected. And so in terms of thinking about clinical care and practice, um, we are going to have to think about ways in which the primary care physician can treat them given that they have very limited time with their patients. 
And so what other care models can we have? Can we incorporate advanced care practitioners to help with some of the triaging in terms of cognitive testing or blood? Um, What can we do in in that regard? Can we think about, you know, in in terms of cancer, there are kind of cancer care uh, guidance um, counselors that can help you navigate to different types of treatments. And so that would also be beneficial in the primary care space. I think, you know, in terms of moving out, um, ideally the setting might be an individual comes in with uh, subjective cognitive complaints or objective cognitive complaints. A uh, person can be referred out, for example, for um, a brief cognitive assessment. If it becomes positive, then maybe referred out to a blood test. If that becomes positive, then at that point you've triaged um, the number down. And so maybe those individuals would be referred on to a specialist. For more, more uh, closely to be more closely followed. So just. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say just one uh, avenue of, of many. Right, and I think this is uh, your your thoughts really illustrate where we're at, because the fundamental issue is we are now needing to transform Alzheimer's from a diagnosis of exclusion to a diagnosis of inclusion. And the way we're going to do that is to increase the diagnostic competence at every level. In my perspective, I think that primary care physicians have felt not comfortable making a diagnosis. So if I could move them away from the imperative of trying to make a diagnosis to managing a blood test, I think a lot of physicians would feel much more comfortable with that. And I think that's really where the paradigm shift has to say. Instead of putting it upon their back to just make a diagnosis, say, well, if it's a lab is abnormal, do something. And if it's normal, you don't have to do something. I think that's where we need to move the field. And with that, I want to say uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Professor Melke. Do you have any last thoughts or or reflections? Uh, No, I I just, you know, this is a really, really exciting time for Alzheimer's disease. So even though we've put out many of these questions and we're not sure exactly how this is going to look at down the road, we are at a point that we can consider it. We have potential disease-modifying therapies. We have the possibility of blood-based biomarkers. Um, so even, you know, we're at, at a fantastic spot compared to where we were 10 years ago. This is really an exciting time. So this is a very important point that Dr. Melke made, is that we cannot look at Alzheimer's anymore as check a B12, TSH, and MRI there's nothing wrong with you, come back and see me in six months. We, that time is gone. We need to start looking at him and saying, a biomarker confirmation is important, it adds value, we can change the outcome, we can change the trajectory, and we can improve the quality of life of these patients with or without the monoclonal antibodies. So it's important that we, under, we move toward a diagnosis of inclusion with CSF, PET, or in the uh, plasma biomarkers. And with that, thank you for joining us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DEC 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.